Grab Podcast. To what do I owe the extreme pleasure of this surprise? Episode number nine. So today we've got Vince Vega, who is a Manchester promoter, DJ and producer, and also the former Happy Mondays tour DJ. And at present, he's also a member of the Dust Junkies. Let's get this podcast going then. How are we doing, Vince? Yeah, not too bad, Craig. Yourself? Yeah, great. Great, mate. Well, considering the uh, still, we're still locked down to an extent. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, before I get going, everyone I've had on, I've asked them, so what are you getting up to during the lockdown? What have you been doing? How have you been keeping yourself busy? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it, all, it was quite sudden. Um, I'd actually had 16 gigs and events booked in um, over the course of the summer leading out of the season. And as soon as the lockdown came in, it was all right. Yeah, and someone said 12 weeks. I thought, oh, 12 weeks. Just about managed 12 weeks. You know, if we can move everything back. Um, so I just kept myself busy um, with the music, um, just constantly working on music, editing music, doing the odd stream, just looking at the calendar, counting down for these 12 weeks uh, lockdown. Um, but now we've gone over the 12 weeks and events are not happening people are starting to just rebook for next year so i've completely lost a, you know a full season of bookings really not just me djing but um for me um events that i put on as well so yes that's one of them isn't it i suppose um what else can you do you, you when your game's in that kind of industry um you can you can only do what you can do i suppose so you're manchester born and bred um yeah I'd love to hear about how you start. How it all started out for you. Obviously, your time in Manchester in the eighties, early eighties and nineties. The eighties were just uh, for me. Um, listening to music, um, watching Body Popping on the streets and the Breaking Crews. Uh, I was into the graffiti scene. I can never body pop or break. I do myself a damage or look an idiot. So I just, I just got more into the music. Um, and obviously, I left school in eighty eight. And as I left school in eighty eight, I passed my test straight away. So it was just the birth of what was then called the rave scene. I had the, the only car um, in my little crew of uh, friends in Salemore, uh, South Manchester. And um, then it all kicked off um, then. So I was primed 17, 18 years old uh, with, a, with a car um, and we was all nice and fresh. And then uh, this music scene suddenly dropped dropped in on us. Perfect timing, that, that was it? The, the end of the 80s. <laughs> What did you get up to in the nineties? Like, did you, did you keep at the at the rave scene in the early nineties? And well, we all went at such a fast pace: eighty eight, eighty nine, ninety, ninety one. You know, by ninety two, ninety three, people, a lot of people, a lot of my friends were starting to get burnout. You know, travelling the country yeah. as you do. Um, for me, music at that point it started. People started to become hung up on genres of sound and going to a night which was just based around a certain sound or a certain feel, um, which, um, I mean, I remember the, dr- the drum and bass scene being formed. We used to go to Coventry to Eclipse, and we didn't know it was called drum and bass at the time. We just knew there was this new sound, this breakbeat sound, sort of, and it was different. It was changing. It had more energy. Uh, it was about more bass lines, whereas, you know, previous to that, it was... We used to go out and used to go to the Hacienda on a Wednesday night and, you know, you'd hear everything from hip-hop to house, you know, and, and, and no one was really hung up on a specific genre of sound. But as we were getting into, you know, 92, 93, people were more interested in going to nights labelled a certain way. 
um, and it sort of didn't help really. It, it created a, it created a lot of divide where you wouldn't see their mates anymore because they specifically only be going to a certain night of a certain style. Where you know, for me, I've just been into all the music. I wasn't really bothered. I mean, like in the early nineties, we was go to venues, especially at the start. We bothered who was DJ, and I remember going to the Hacienda. And I was never really interested who was DJing. I wasn't there. I was there because of the whole feel of the place, you know. Yeah. And, you know, the interest in DJs came later, you know. So that, that's how sort of things sort of changed and evolved um, in Manchester in the early 90s. Plus, it was a dark and dismal place in the late 80s. Um, so it had to change, which it did. It got some good investment, um, you know, which has only just it's got better and better for the place now. Didn't you... Um... Build your own recording studio, the Juicy House, Manchester. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Me and Johnny Abstract um, and Rob Fitton. My 95, 96, started buying drum machines, um, sequencers. We had uh, bought an Atari ST E1040. Um, I remember getting a loan and buying a, an Akai sampler, uh, an S950, which took three and a half inch floppy disks. God, three and a half inch <laughs> floppy disks. Didn't get much room on them to sample. And then we, we needed a space. Um, and Juicy House at the time um, was a multifunctional space in Manchester near Piccadilly, near Piccadilly and, um, Station. And um, it was, you could, it was a way of getting um, in somewhere where you didn't have to pay months of rent up front. You didn't have to enter into a commitment period. You just turn up and pay and they give you a space. And in this building, when we went in there, we didn't realise how many creative people were in there. Yeah. So when we went there, we just went for a space to somewhere so we could turn it up loud, stay there for 12 hours making music. And when we went there, we ended up in the studio opposite a guy called Gerald, Gerald Simpson. Next door to us was the magazine Jockey Slot. And Stu Allen was a few doors along from there. There was artists in there. There was all sorts. I didn't realise we'd walked into a community of creative people within that sort of building um, and that was the one thing I do remember about that time being in there, um, as well as obviously driving everyone mad with the music which switched up very loud. You know, I think it was studios were trying to outdo each other with how loud they were, and it was the loudest. I suppose uh, that was a, looking back, you kind of landed at the you know the right place at the right time with that. It sounds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't really get much done, but we just had a good time doing it. Um, we did learn a little bit because we was able to spend the time um, on the machines. Um, and then Gerald moved to Berlin then um, and left a massive whole studio there because we used to go in and sort of learn off him really what he was doing. Um, and then that was, and then after that, when we f- finished doing that, uh, we went to um, college to do music technology, myself and Johnny Abstract, because we really, we've never been in a classroom. And we thought it's about time we sort of learn things in a different way. Was it off the back of that that you, you released your first EP? Was it from there or was that something? Yeah, well, we'd had lots of, um, we'd recorded lots of demos and lots of tracks, so many. And we'd always have a DAT recorder just running. And um, and when, at the end of, I mean, probably 2000 it was, about the year 2000, 2001, um, I got this DAT recorder and I just went through it all and didn't realise actually what we'd made at the time. And I thought, God, some of these tracks are really good. Some of them were awful and some of them were really good. 
Um, so I chopped them all up, edited them all down, um, because by then laptops were just about powerful enough, and I just got Ableton and Reason, and I was able to edit and chop down these tracks into like five-minute, six-minute tracks, whereas when we had the DAT recorder going, these would be like 20-minute tracks. Um, and then we sent them off to New Religion, uh, which was owned by Parlophone, a friend of ours, was working there. And um, by 2004, it came out the first release on um, New Religion Records as, as vinyl, on a piece of vinyl. Uh, Johnny Abstract went down as, uh, under the name of Mr. Shifter. And then he rang up and said, uh, what's your name? And I went, oh, I don't, don't know what I want to call myself because I needed an artist name at the time. So uh, I just looked at a video box on the side and it was a Pulp Fiction video <laughs> box. So I just picked it up. I went, yeah, that's my name. Vince Vega called me that. I believe that you retired as well for three years. Is that raising your, uh, your firstborn? Yeah, well, basically what happened there was in 2004, my firstborn, uh, Max, um, came along and it was his room, uh, the nursery, whatever you want to call it, uh, that was that was my studio. And it was, so I had to, so I just unpacked everything, put it all in the loft, did the room up, it became a little nursery for him, and it was great. Um, and then it, I sort of spe- I thought I'm going to spend a little bit little bit of time, so I'm going to have a year off because I'll be constantly in in the room, you know, just making music. And in the end, computers and software became more powerful, and everyone was started being more software based. So I went in my loft and I saw me rolling stuff, me, um, me Akai, all my equipment and me Yamaha. And I thought, right, and I drove to Johnny Roadhouse and sold a lot, um, which now I'm actually gutted about um, because I thought I could just carry on with a laptop on my knee and a mother keyboard and it'd be just the same. Yeah. Uh, how wrong I was, really, because I wish I would have kept all that equipment. Yeah. Was it 2007 that you ended up as a resident DJ at Bar Amp for yeah. three years? I'd love to hear more about yeah. that as well. Yeah, well, what happened there was I'd, I'd, I'd not been doing anything for three years since my lad was born, and uh, and a venue opened around the corner from us in Sale, and uh, I just stuck my head in, and I just said, do you need a DJ? And um, they went, yeah, yeah, we open next week, come down. And I didn't really think about it. I just went down. I'd, never, I'd done the odd DJ set now and again, but I've never really... DJ properly, you know. Um, I've never had a vinyl collection. I just had lots of CDs with music. So I went down and I ended up doing. I think it was probably every Saturday night for the next three years. Plus, I used to put band. I started putting band nights on then because the, the band scene in Manchester was uh, quite was thriving at the time. And um, yeah, I started putting band nights on there and uh, like I say, DJing every Saturday night. But I was playing a lot of uh, funk, soul, and indie as well at that time. Yeah. Was it through though that you, you met uh, Danny McManara from Embrace? Was it was it from that yeah. period? Well, then? he opened up in Manchester at a night called the After Show, and because the, the, the you know he'd uh, he knew that there was a thriving band scene in Manchester, um, and there was there were some really really great bands at the time in the two thousand and six two thousand and seven all the way to about two thousand and ten with Twisted Wheel the Noughties. Just to just to name but a few, and Ting Tings were coming through, and I mean, so many bands, uh, really good bands, and a lot of pe- pe- kids were coming out to watch the, the unsigned bands of Manchester. You don't get that now, and um, and the the venues were you know were pretty full. And he used to do night called the after show, which would sell out most, most nights. 
every Thursday night, sank as it was. And then he, he purchased the venue Moho Live in the Northern Quarter. Um, and he's just obviously, you know, started working with him on events there. And um, we had some funny nights. Um, and that's when, the, like I say, the, the band scene was, was thriving. We did also have on um, some bigger bands as well to support the uh, the unsigned bands. Like we had Goldie Looking Chain on and uh, Nev Staples and a few sort of bigger bands on, you know, to s- support them nights, uh, which were also funny nights. Um, yeah, and uh, then he, I think he sold up. Um, and when moved back to London again, I think it's 2011. That was the same year that you started working with Baz after he split from the Mondays as well. well yeah, no, well, no, I, I, well, doing them nights at the after show with, uh, I started putting uh, my own nights on as well at Moho, and uh, I remember having Calvary on and inviting um, a band, a local band, unsigned band called Domino Bones. Yeah. Domino Bones was Monica Ward, Wags, who used to be in Black Grape, and Bez. Yep. Bez had just split on the Mondays in 2009. Um, so this was, yeah, summer 2009. So I had them on, um, which was a good night. Um, and then from that night, I started working with Bez with his band called Domino Bones. Um, and I said, I'll put you on a, a tour. And I, I created a tour called uh, Life in a Northern Town. Um, and the first gig was supposed to be of this tour um, in Ashton a night called The Underground, I think, and this was late 2009, and uh, Wags um, broke his arm the night before, and so we couldn't do that gig, the first gig of the tour, which was a nightmare. Um, and then, we, so we he had to get replaced quite quickly, and then uh, we did, did a few other uh, northern uh, venues at the time, um, which was quite funny, um, because Monica, his missus at the time, a really, really good singer, yeah. You know, and it was a great band, Domino Bones. Um, and then they just sort of disbanded um, because me and Bess started uh, going out DJing a lot around the UK. And that was before we got day jobs. <laughs> I believe that you went to, to Glastonbury with that. Was it in 2010? I mean, there's got to be yeah, a Yeah, that's right. He had his own scent, uh, Bez's Acid House, which was, um, which was quite good. Um which was just a huge marquee in a field, uh, massive sound system, big strobe light. And, um, yeah, that, that was really good. I mean, that's still going now every year. It's on in the unfair ground. Yeah, um, I did a few a few years doing that. But, um, yeah, that yeah, 2010, that was it. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> 10 years ago, that. Time flies, doesn't it, when you're having fun? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the following year, he was uh, DJing full-time with us, and you both ended up, you said, with an office job. Was it, was it for a media company or a record label or something like that? Yeah. Well, it's, it's quite strange to think that, yeah, me and Bez had a job in an office. But we had a pool <laughs> table in the office. Um, you know, um, it was Jungle Media, it was called, based in Trafford, San, Tra- Trafford Park. And um, his job to bring people in from the music industry into the building. And to get around a table to talk music, to talk record labels and media and stuff. Yeah, and and then he did sort of he got paid to just sit there with his phone book and do that and do introductions. So yeah, it was yeah, not that lasted uh, about six months. <laughs> <laughs> no, what happened was I think it lasted until the Mondays got back together again in 2012. Yeah, and then that's when the tour started. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I was just going to ask you about that. You went on tour with them. You travelled the world, I believe, with them. There's got, there's got to be some tales, though. There's got to be. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it was SJM got the original... SJM 
uh, concerts, got the original, managed to get the original lineup back together again, which was Paul Ryder and Mark Day, Rowetta. Um, so, which was a first for them, all standing members since the split, you know, in the early 90s. Um, so, they booked um, a tour around the UK with the spiral carpets. Um, and I got asked on to do some road management with them, with the tour DJ, which ended up me being also a compare as well. Um, I sort of got thrust into it, um, sort of didn't really know what to expect. Um, and it was sort of pretty bizarre, really, um, for someone like myself who's never, uh, you know, been in that position and situation. Yeah. Um, like, um, Night after night after night, playing in front of 12, 13, 14,000 people, you know, um, and having to be on stage for an hour in between these spiral carpets and the Mondays with a microphone full of ale on the decks. <laughs> so there was disaster somewhere written. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, which there was a few stories, um, especially one when um, I used to use PC laptops with a controller to DJ um, because I Hold on and off on a DJ board, and it was doing Brixton Academy. And it's sold out, um, and my PC laptop went on to auto update uh, while I was DJing four tracks in, which means it locked, turns itself off the laptop. <laughs> so everyone's bouncing, I'm giving it the big one on the mic, and suddenly off, you know, the music. And so I blamed it on the electric, you know. So power cut, power cut, engineers running around everywhere looking for this power cut. I knew blind well. It was my laptop that had gone down. So then the DJ box just got pushed off slowly off the off the off the um, off the stage. I could just hear everyone going, "Woo!" It was the longest, it was the longest ten yards I've ever been pushed on a DJ across the dance floor, across the stage. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, th- that's not what that's one of my f- funniest memories. It's funny. It's funny now when I think about it. Anyway, after that, I bought a MacBook Pro that doesn't do automatic uh, update. <laughs> Anyone listening is going to ask what it's like touring with with the Happy Mondays. I mean, have they calmed down a bit? I know Sean's obviously, he's, he, I believe he's teetotal on that now. Anyway, but at the time, what was it still? Were they still a bit crazy, or was it? Yeah, yeah, no, I don't think he's teetotal, but you know, um, I used to travel with Bez and Rowetta. Uh, Sean used to travel on his own, um, and that's the way the management wanted it. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, we would we travelled the world separately, um, you know, on different flights uh, as well. And, uh, yeah, th- th- that's what happened. I think it's just by choice, by the management choice, wanted to keep a few people apart. Yeah. Um, so certain people won't go off the rails. I don't know. That, that must have been the reasons, you know. Well, I went to, it was at a Liverpool gig. I went backstage there and I bet that's the first time I met Bez and he's exactly how I would imagine. He's just the same person, what you see. On the TV, he can't be any different, can he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. Um, that's all his life is, is he's ever known, you know. So, yeah. and that's he's just who he is. What you see, yeah. They were sort of mad days, really. Um, but but DJing away and abroad with them was was totally very different, you know. I didn't realise when you, you know you go to other countries, other continents, how clued up we are on music scene in the UK and yeah. obviously the Manchester scene as well. You just don't realise that, you know, and I'm in Chile talking to uh, people from Santiago and they're telling me things about the jam and the who and Manchester bands. I didn't even know, yeah. you know, like 
they were asking me, they were asking me to sign records, not even Monday's records. I was like, you don't want me to sign them. Get the lads to sign them. Um, I remember getting thrown off stage in um, in Santiago, in um, Buenos Aires in in uh, Argentina because uh, I had a Tevez shirt on and he didn't like it after six tracks. I got pushed off stage. I said, what's that for? And didn't tell me at the time. And I realised this is because you've got Tevez on the back of your shirt. And I thought, well, he's, he's Argentinian. Said, yeah, but these, these fans from the other teams that you didn't play for, you know, in the crowd. Well, they are hardcore fans over there, aren't they? You know, South America. We, we think we're, we've got bad fans over here, but nothing compared to those. Yeah, that, 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 that's one of my biggest memories of travelling. Um, is you know what the respect and um, and what people think about the British music scene. You don't realise you know how, how many people are into it, yeah. and they're really into it. You know when you go abroad. Yeah. You know you don't realise, um, and that you know that opened my eyes massively. Now, didn't you get um? Was it a blood painting off Pete Doctor? How did that come about? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we went to the NME Awards, and um, the day after. Uh, Bez said, oh, we're going to see Pete. He went to Camden, went to his flat, and uh, it's all these canvases. Um, and he's like, what, what are they? What? And he went, makes them out of his own blood. <laughs> you know, like, um, really good, really good paintings, but which, all, all, all it is, it's just blood on canvas. Yeah. So um, he said, do you want one? Because we said, we'll auction it off in Manchester for this media company we work for. So he went, yeah, 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 yeah. So we, the next thing, we've gone across the road to this cafe. Um, it's a jazz cafe. I said, yeah, I'll be down with it in a bit. So we're, uh, we're in there, something to eat. Next thing, I saw this canvas come running across the road. You know, Orn's bibbing, right? You didn't see a body. You just saw this canvas sort of floating across the road. So he's come legging it. He's running into this jazz cafe with this big canvas with his own blood. People looking at it thinking, what's that? Right? So then I asked him to explain to me what it was. And it was one of a Chinese pigman. Um this opium dealer that he in his head, in mind that he'd done this canvas of. Uh, but then I was stuck with it because no one, I couldn't get it on the train. I couldn't get it in the car, but how am I going to get this back? And it's quite worth quite a bit of money. These, cause they're in, um, they are places, these, these yeah. canvases that he does. And I thought, so I was ringing white van, white van men, you know, in London, and no, no one was willing to take it to Manchester, and I thought, right, I'm stuck in the middle of Camden with this canvas. You know what I mean? I thought, what am I going to do with it? And eventually I got someone, got it 250 quid to drive it back to Manchester. But um, anyway, I didn't tell them what it was worth, you know, just in case yeah. they went missing. Yeah. And eventually we made it back, and it got auctioned off, I think, for the homeless. Yeah. Um, in the match it went for, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've never had a chance to thank him for that, actually, so... What, what was he like what, as a person? Like, he seems like a nice guy, to be fair. I didn't really have a chance to speak to him that much, no. um, to be honest with you, because talking to him about the painting, everything was a bit of a rush. Yeah. But yeah, no, no, I mean, I know people who know him and that. Um, and I've always been into his music. You know, he, he, he's, uh, for me, he's a true rock and roller, Pete Doherty. Um, I love that solo album he had out, Waste and Gracelands, which is almost like an acoustic album. That's one of my favourite albums. I was out about 10 years ago. Go, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I like him because he keeps reinventing himself in, in ways like that. Prefer prefer to, you know, like just leave it. That just get the painting off him and just listen to his music. You know. So yeah. I like the Baby Shambles. I thought they were good as well. It was a good band. Yeah, they were. Every, every project he's been involved with has been class. But I, I like that about bands and artists if they can reinvent themselves. 
and if they can do something different and do work on different projects. So I like Damon Albarn, for instance, you know, with yeah. the blur thing and then the gorilla thing, you know, and people who just reinvent themselves come from um, David Bowie for me, you know, yeah. with his Ziggy Stardust thing, you know. Do you remember when he did, was it The Good, The Bad and The Queen as well? That, that was a really good live act. Sorry, say that again, Craig. Uh, Damon Albarn with The Good, The Bad and The Queen. Do you remember the live act? It was about 15 years ago or something like that. Do you not remember that one he did? That no, was... no, no, don't remember that. Yeah, well, give that a Google, have a listen to it. It's really good. It's really different, really good live act. That was Damon Albarn. Really good stuff. He's just collaborated with Peter Hook, hasn't he, on a project? I'm not sure. To be honest. One in America, I think. Has it? Oh, I'll, have to, yeah, I'll, have yeah. I'll have to have a look for that then, definitely. Um, didn't you um, open your own nightclub as well? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, by 2013, I was kicking my heels a bit because I'd been working at a venue called Antwerp Mansion. I was also a bookings manager there, which was in the South. Antwerp Mansion is a crazy place because it's it's an old Victorian house. It used to be the Belgian consulate, and it's placed right behind the curry houses in the Russian part of Manchester. Yep. And if you've never been there, it's, it can be. It looks like a a house out of a horror film and it's a house with a license basically so you're in the, the stages in the front room um and i was there for about 18 months as a bookings manager and i thought right i want my own antwerp mansion um but i didn't want a venue i didn't want a nightclub i wanted to build something from scratch that wasn't a purpose-built venue um so I came up with a bright idea of uh which Bright ideas at the time that always come out great. But um, we had a good time doing it. We found an abattoir um, and a cellar beneath Unity Radio in Ancoats. And uh, we managed to secure a deal where we um, rebuilt, rebranded and relaunched this space because it was an old venue, but it didn't do much there. And we just I got really creative. It was more like an art project, really, where there was no lighting in there. It was just about 12 projectors um, projecting the same video in a 360-degree range as your lighting. So wherever you looked, the video was the same, and that was the lighting, yeah. just as the art thing. Because I did it with a friend of mine called Simon Bullows, who was also involved in the Antwerp mansion. So it was... But... Um, it just blew up very quickly because things got out of a hand with uh, too many people being pulled in different directions and too many ideas. And it was only supposed to be temporary anyway, but it just ended a little bit sooner than what we want. We wanted to get more out of the space than what we did. But um, yeah, um, Underland it was called. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that was really good. But the brand still carries on. The Underland brand still carries on anyway. Is that something you'd do again in, in the future? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. If I open my own space again, um, I, I know what to do. I know not to have five, six people all trying to make decisions and all trying to be creative and all have their own ideas. I just do something. It's got to be one or two of your maximum. Um, you know, so, so be, yeah, but it's about finding the right space at the right time, um, which now I think with this lockdown, I think there's going to be a lot of vacant spaces. Yeah. Um, happening, <coughs> uh, available, should I say. With this lockdown, a lot of people look at it as like a negative thing, but out of situations like this, there's always opportunity as well, I think. There always is. Yeah, yeah. Well, they always, what, what, what do they say about a disaster? Always something <laughs> great grows from the other side, you know. Yeah. Um, there will be. There's always change. Things are always evolving. Um, the landscape in Manchester will change again. It's always evolving and changing. You know, there's and that, you know, to, when you think about it, uh, the reputation that Manchester's got 
with regards to nightclubbing and nightclubs. Um, it, it, there isn't any nightclubs in Manchester anymore. They're all small, yeah. uh, independently owned spaces. Um, so when you know the tourist, the, the usual tourist comes into Manchester, because I get this quite a lot. I've been to Manchester. Where's the best club to go to? And I went, well, there isn't really any clubs anymore. They're yeah. just small uh, bars that have got their own identity from the person that owns them, yeah. um, really. And you get the odd warehouse project, uh, which is your odd four thousand, and the Hacienda is you know moves about now and again, but. Uh, since Sankey shut down, there isn't anything left in Manchester anymore. So I think this is a good time um, to sort of draw the line and for people to think, right, OK, let's find some space and let's do things again. We've just got to hope the licensing people moving forward just relax, just relax a little bit, you know, and just stop, just stop being so hard with everything and everyone, you know. Yeah, that's it. In 2015, Black Great Reform. Now, I remember last time I spoke to you, you said that you uh, you feel responsible for it. I just wondered, you know, well, how so? Yeah, well, what happened there was when I was on tour with the Bundys, uh, I was working with Kermit. Um, he used to have a band called Black um, Blind Arcade, and um, and I put him on at Antwerp Mansion. I give him a couple of gigs, which was him and a producer called Luke. Um, and really, really good music. I mean, Kermit's one of the best songwriters around for me, still at Walsh and still is. And uh, he, I, said, I always used to go on to him about the Black Grape album. It's great when you're straight. And he don't think he spoke to Sean for about 15 years. Um, and I said, listen, I'll give this demo to Sean. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, see what he thinks. You know, he'd be great. If Black Grape could get back together again. So I was in Belfast after a, a Monday's gig and I gave him this CD. I said, this is Kermit, Sean. And he's looked at me as if to say, and I said, look, he's straight, he's fine with him. And here's this demo. And sort of looked at me odd, oddly. I went, mm, yeah, right. I don't think he realised what I'd give him anyway, um, which was the best sort of thing to do because, um, and then it, after that, we were doing Junction 16 Festival and Kermit was with me. And I brought him backstage and they could meet each other again. They'd not seen each other face to face for 15 years. And then after that, um, about a year later, suddenly they get back together again. Um, so, which was good. So, um, and humbling. And I'm really glad that they did get back together again because they wrote a wicked album, which was out recently. Yeah. Before we kind of wrap it up, I just wondered, what are you getting up to these days? You know, obviously you told us what you're doing at present at lockdown, but what are your plans for the future? Um, what else have you got going on? Well, what I do is uh, I've been writing and producing my own music. I had an EP come out in February called The Elastic Fantastic, which is a mix of funk and house music um, on Platinum Rare Records and Spotify. There's no physical copies, yeah. uh, but you can get it online. Also, So I'm working on my own um, productions, also working with Dust Junkies, um, which we've just put that new EP out uh, of remixes yeah uh, which is available as a physical copy t-shirt from the ever good double good garments <laughs> uh, which you did the design on which is um which are going down really well and um i'm just waiting for the venues to reopen again because i'm when i go back into the venues and do some djing i'm going to start i've started to do djing and live set so i'm taking me uh launch pad sequences with me so as i'm playing i'm I'm also putting my own stuff underneath it and then dropping into my own stuff. Um, more funk stuff I'm doing now 
and then dropping into tracks. So it's semi-live and semi-DJing, which I'm sort of, this lockdown has allowed me to sort of yeah. get into a lot deeper. Um, so I'll be quite ready to go out and do something a little bit different um, when the when we're all can go back um, after the lockdown. And hopefully um, we're going to do something with the Dust Junkies with Moving Festival because Moving Festival um, are doing a, a virtual um, festival uh, on the date that it usually is at, at the end of August. And um, they've asked us to do a Dust Junkie set where we're all playing our parts from wherever we are, um, virtually, should I say. Yeah. So that should be interesting. We we did a an event not not for double good it was for my other brand that I've got and I remember you showed me something about that igloo that you've got that that'd be a great little venue that oh, you know yeah. you know for like a promotional event so maybe in the, in the future when all this stuff's over we might be able to do something with that yeah 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 I've got um well I call it a, but when you say igloo to people they say what I say look it's a mobile <laughs> event space it holds two hundred people right goes up in twenty minutes blows up in twenty minutes it goes on grass concrete. Right, and go, oh, I know what you mean. And I just say it's in the shape of an igloo. Did about seven, eight festivals with it the other year, and it was just ready to go this season. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've got it up in Bishop Auckland, which is where I now live, and I had it booked on quite a few things, and um, so that's ready to go. Uh, but like I say, yeah, Manchester Igloo Company, it's called on Facebook, and um, you can hire it out, and it's, like you say, a mobile event space. Um, it's a 14 metres by 14 metres it is. Um, but yeah, no, I had that a few years. Yeah, yeah, that, that's just something a side project I've got going. Um, but it only runs in the summer seasons. Yeah, I had to look at it when you sent me the links and that for it. It looks really good. You know, something different. Yeah, you can get really creative with it. The <laughs> yeah. interior. Anyway, mate, thanks for coming on. I'll stick any links that you want on in the comments and whatnot in the description. Sorry, like I say, thanks for coming on. It's been a cool interview. I'm sure plenty of people are going yeah, to be no, interested. Yeah, no, nice. Don't give us a call, Craig. I'll. Um, I'll catch up with you. All yeah. right, mate. Yeah, definitely, mate. Thanks again, Vince. See you later. Meet you in a bit, mate. Bye. Meet you in a bit.